Okay, we've been discussing the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. This is the first sutta in the Machimanikaya called, the title means, The Discourse on the Rupas. And as I explained last time, this sutta is extremely compressed, extremely concise, and it's also very deep. In fact, it's probably the deepest sutta spoken by the Buddha. In this sutta, the Buddha sets out to explain the cognitive process, the mental functioning of four types of individuals, the, what's called the uninstructed worldling, the ordinary person of the world, who has no respect for the Aryans, the noble ones, and whose mind is untrained in the practice of the Buddha's path. Then there is the learner or disciple in higher training, then the arahant or liberated one, and finally the tathagata, the perfect one, the Buddha himself. And now we started the exposition by taking the cognitive process of the ordinary person, the uninstructed worldling. And last week we actually spent almost the whole class just explaining the meaning of this phrase, he perceives earth as earth. This is the beginning of the cognitive process. And as I explained last time, when we base ourselves on the way this phrase is treated by the commentary, what it means is that when the worldling perceives any object, that perception immediately becomes infected, we can say, infected by some distortion so that instead of seeing the object as it really is in its true nature, instead of understanding it clearly and correctly, the worldling grasps it in perception in some way which deviates from its real nature. This already takes place at a very, very elementary step in the process of cognition. I, th I think the first step not mentioned in the sutta is just a direct perception of the object. An immediate direct perception before the mind throws anything of its own into the perception. But immediately after that takes place, within a snap second, a subtle distortion starts to occur. And according to the way of explaining in the commentaries, this distortion involves what are called the four vipalasas, the four distortions or perversions which infect our perception, our thinking, and our views. At the level of perception, this means perceiving things that are really impermanent as being permanent, 
stable, lasting. Perceiving things which are really concealed forms of suffering, things which are unsatisfactory, unreliable, seeing them as sources of happiness and pleasure. Then there is third, seeing what is actually insubstantial without any intrinsic essence, without any kind of inner core of self or substance, seeing things as being substantial, particularly taking ourselves to have some kind of inner essence or self. And then the fourth, which applies particularly to the physical body, is seeing the body as beautiful and lovely, <laughs> whereas when one opens the skin and perceives the body inwardly, one sees the body, it's really unattractive, just an assembly of organs and tissues, fluids and so on. Okay, so now when the whirling perceives earth as earth, that means that he perceives any object, any solid object, by way of these, already these four distortions are starting to work on his perception, so he takes it as being some kind of solid, lasting substance. Not yet, he's not yet working up any views or thoughts about this. It's just something which is happening at a very elementary stage in the process of cognition. Just a very subtle twisting of the real phenomenon so that it appears filtered through the filters of the mind rather than in its actuality, in its reality. Okay, now the Buddha continues. Having perceived, first I'll read the passage and we'll take each phrase separately. Having perceived earth as earth, he, I'm going to eliminate what is put in bracket. Having perceived earth as earth, he conceives earth, he conceives in earth, he conceives from earth, he conceives earth to be mine, he delights in earth. Okay, this is rather obscure as it stands, even puzzling and mysterious. But let us take first this verb, the important key here is the verb manyati. Okay, the word, the verb manyati can be translated, here we use the translation conceive, conceive. It's related to mano, which means mind. Even if it's the English word mind is in some way related to manyati. And from the verb manyati we have a noun manyana. Write that too. Okay, so manyan from the verb manyati we get this noun manyana which has the sense of thinking but manyana means not ordinary thinking 
not the kind of regular logical thinking or discursive thinking. That is indicated by another word, vitakya. But rather, manyana means distorted thinking. Thinking which is infected with imagination or you could say thought construction. It is the type of thinking which builds up upon the distorted perception as the foundation and then starts constructing, erecting edifices of thought which do not correspond to the nature of reality. And if one wants to find out what is actually meant by manyana, one has to consult other suttas and bring them together to interpret this sutta. And the sutta which is in the Majjhima Nikaya, which is quite helpful for understanding manyana, is sutta number 140, which we've already discussed. In that sutta, the Buddha speaks about the tides of conceiving, and he uses the word manyita. That is another noun from manyita. Manyita means what is conceived. Manyana is the act of conceiving, the act of distorted thinking. Manyita are the ideas or concepts which are created by this distorted thinking. And now we get quite philosophical. This is almost like <laughs> um, a lecture, a real lecture in philosophy. In Sutta number 140, paragraph number 31, the Buddha raises the question, what is it that is conceived? And he says, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. Then he goes on with some more specific types of conceiving. But the basic types of conceiving are first the notion I am, then the notion I am this, then I shall be, and I shall not be. Okay, so conceiving manyana is the type of thinking in which the notion of I, of a self, of some kind of ego entity, enters or slips into the process of consciousness in such a way that the thinking, the thought, the feelings, perceptions, everything that goes on in the mind starts to center around this notion of an I, a really existing I. 
the experience itself is without any center point of I am. This is the Buddha's great discovery of anatta, of selflessness or egolessness. The experience is just, you can say, an immediate, almost a naked act of cognition without any fixed, stable point around which it centers. But because of this beginningless ignorance of bija, which is like a shadow cast over all of our consciousness, whenever we experience anything, that ignorance functions in such a way that the experience seems to focus upon a true, solid, lasting subject of the experience. That is the notion, I am. And so we say, I think, I speak, I eat, I walk, I want this, I believe that, I like this, I'm going there. Again and again we're always thinking in terms of I, I, I. And we just take this concept, this notion of I for granted. It seems to be the most obvious, the most solid, the most real thing in the world. And so we assume the existence of this I. This is the conceiving of I am. But this notion of I am, according to the Buddha, it's just a kind of, I call it a loop in the process of consciousness which has no real being in itself. We could say the process of consciousness is like a whirlpool. Everything, the water is always changing, changing, changing. Everything is becoming and passing away. But the wor- in the whirlpool, the water is always circling around a center. And so it seems that there is something solid at the center of the whirlpool. But when one looks into the whirlpool to see what the water is circling around, what is there? Excuse me? There's nothing there. It's empty. (laughs) And so similarly the Buddha says that our experience, our consciousness, it's really empty of self, empty of anything that belongs to self. But because of avidya, unknowingness, ignorance, a self, an I, appears on every occasion of experience, from morning to night. I am, I am, I am. Okay, then usually we just take the I for granted and go about our daily business. And so the I, for most people, doesn't become a problem. But then occasionally one gets stopped in one's tracks. Maybe something happens, a sudden catastrophe or tragedy, something that throws one back upon one's own 
inner processes and then one starts to wonder hey I'm thinking I, I, I but what is this I? and so one starts to wonder what is the real I, my true self then as one reflects different people come to different conclusions according to personal disposition according to maybe cultural influences um, and so whenever they are examining the I trying to find the real I they always come upon something or other amongst this complex of body and mind or in Buddhist terminology the five aggregates so we come to different views about what is this I? what is this self? is it the body? is it feeling? is it perception? is it will, volition? is it thinking? is it consciousness? is it mind? or is it some kind of mysterious entity behind the body, behind feelings, behind consciousness, something within the body, within feelings, within consciousness, something above the body, above the feelings, above consciousness. We come to all varieties of different views about what I am, who I really am, that is the conceiving I am this where one tries to give some meaning to the notion of I to give it some content by identifying the I with some aspect of one's personal being or one posits some relationship between this I and one's personal being. This is I am this. Then one starts to speculate about the future destiny of this I am the self. Does it exist forever? That is I shall be, I will exist forever after death. Or I shall not be. I will die. When I die, then the self is annihilated and doesn't exist after death. That's the duality of eternalism, the eternal self, and annihilationism. The self is cut off and perishes at death. Okay, now the commentaries say that there are three factors behind this distorted thinking called manyana. There are kind of three springs from which this distorted thinking arises. These three springs, it's not lobodosamova, not greed, hatred, delusion, but rather craving, conceit, and wrong view, speculative view. In Pali this is tanha, 
mana ditti. Here craving is not so much the grosser craving of desiring to get so much wealth and so much power and status, but already at the very subtle level it's the the function of craving is just to make things appear as mine. It's craving which gives rise to the notion this is mine or else that is not mine but it can be mine, it should be mine. And so craving gives rise to these distorted, this distorted thinking in terms of what is mine, what is yours, what should be mine, what can be mine, what I should possess. Not only externally, but it's also craving, which makes us cling to this body and mind, taking these five aggregates to be mine. This is my body, my feelings, my thoughts, my ideas, my consciousness. Then mana or conceit, it's not yet the gross conceit thinking I am the best, I am the chief, I am the superior to everyone else, but rather this is the subtlest, most elementary conceit, which is the idea I am something at all. I am anything. For the Buddha's teaching, even that notion, I am, is just an empty bubble, something big, bright, and shiny, but it's empty inside. And those thoughts of I, 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 those, according to the Buddha, are just the bubbles coming up from this deep tendency towards conceit. And then when one accepts the idea that I am, that I am something, then one fashions the views, theories, opinions about what I am. Those are the conceiving, springing from views. And all such thoughts according to the Buddha's teaching, the thoughts born of craving, born of conceit, born of views, are just imagining fantasy without correspondence in reality. And they all rest on this foundation of deluded perception, distorted perception. Okay, this all sounds very abstract, but maybe we could give some concrete examples. Okay, one is feeling a little dissatisfied, one starts looking, turning the pages of the newspaper, one comes across the advertisement for okay, cigarettes. Okay, the eye alights on the picture, the guy is sitting there, 
on a rock overlooking some beautiful scenery, relaxing. He has the cigarette up to the mouth, big smile on the face. Okay, when your eye falls on the newspaper page, you see the fellow sitting there with the smile and the cigarette. There is a perception. And you're not perceiving the piece of paper, the newspaper, as it is, but immediately you grasp the image of the guy happy with the cigarette. Then through okay, the work, this is not so philosophical, through the work of craving, then one thinks, ah, if I were to get that, buy that kind of cigarette and start smoking it, I will be able to sack on the ledge and enjoy myself with, of course they give him a big shiny card right next to him, maybe a beautiful girl next on the side. So everything is designed to stimulate the perception, to impinge on the perception and stimulate the thinking, the manyana, so that one erects this imaginary castle on top of the foundation of this deluding, deceptive picture of happiness in the newspaper page. So not thinking in this way, and before you know it, if you haven't been smoking, then you have to stop smoking because you want to share in that happiness. Or maybe another example is, okay, I'll take the example of pornography, even maybe soft pornography. One has the picture in the magazine of the girl scantily dressed with a bright smile on her face, and the man looks in the newspaper. First there comes the perception. Ah, that's a beautiful woman. Then, based on that perception, then his mind starts thinking, Oh, if I had a woman like that, then I would be so happy. Then he starts building up fantasies upon fantasies. And it's all based upon a perception of just a piece of paper with ink on it. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> then there's conflict, let us say ethnic conflict, racial conflict, based on the notions this person is Singhalese, this person is Tamil, this person is Muslim, this person is white, this is black. Okay, there's perception just of a particular color skin, a particular racial features. One forgets that these are human beings, just like ourselves, and then one starts building notions built of past prejudice. Okay, these, like for example, in America they have <laughs> people are always thinking about Polish people. They have jokes. Oh, the Polish people are so dirty that you cannot go to their houses. The houses are just like big <laughs> <like> styles. <laughs> Last week I used the example also in America of the white people have particular pictures of the black people, so they're always afraid that they have the image the black person is violent and aggressive. Okay, so these are thought conceptions erected upon a foundation of distorted perception. And when one accepts the thought constructions at face value, then one becomes emotionally involved with them. 
Exactly the same as Papancha. In fact, I was going to bring up that point, excellent point, that Manyana and Papancha are just exactly the same thing. Papancha means proliferation. Elaborate, the mind builds up from perception and it elaborates an imaginary picture of the way the world is, the way one is oneself. And that Papancha, that elaboration, is all just a project of imagination. Manyana is exactly the same thing. It's the thinking rooted in distorted perception which builds up a deluded picture of the world. A picture in which everything centers upon the reality of Mama, the I, Mama and Mugi, I and Mind. Is Mana the same as Asmi Mana? It's the same as Asmi Mana, right? The, the conceit I am. Okay, now coming back to the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, the text of the Sutta. Okay, now the Buddha says that this conceiving can take place in four ways. Here we have it here. He conceives earth. It's almost like the declension of the noun according to the Pali grammar. He perceives earth. I'm sorry, he conceives earth. He conceives in earth. He conceives from earth. He conceives earth to be mine. Okay, this shows the four ways in which one posits oneself in relation to any type of object. Here the, Bu the Buddha will use 24 different bases in the Sutta. But he begins with the four elements, the four primary elements, and the first element is earth. So we can take the four elements as, say, representing the physical body, or even the, not only the physical body, but all of physical nature. And now the whirling is trying to establish his identity in relation to the physical world. So he might begin by taking himself to be the physical body. For example, this is materialism. I am matter, the body. There is no mind, no consciousness apart from this body. And the all consciousness itself can just be reduced to a byproduct of material processes, or it is just a, an aspect of material, physical processes but there is no self, no mind apart from these physical processes. This is a kind of materialistic reductionism. It could take place at a philosophical level, 
where somebody adopts the view that we are bodies only, nothing else. But it can also be taking place at a more emotional or instinctive level where a person identifies with the body, not philosophically, but always concerned to look beautiful, strong. Some people are fanatically concerned about their health. They always have to be sure that nothing goes a little astray in the diet, always balancing their proteins with their... What do proteins balance? all the vitamins are in the right proportion and then the men go to the health spas of course they go to maintain their health that's quite alright but they have to be very strong you have the young men who are the weightlifters always like to impress the young girls with their strong muscles then you have also the women identify with the bodies always looking in the mirror and now I think in the West this has so become such an obsession. The young girls are always taught that the ideal woman is a very slim, very thin, so they're afraid to eat and so they go on these extreme diets. They bull mania, that's where they force themselves to vomit what they eat so that they can lose weight. And this comes through kind of force almost and I was saying that this practice of the women that being forced to reduce their weight is something which is promoted almost aggressively by the advertising by through advertising to create this ideal image and so people become they always rate themselves against this ideal image and this comes through over-identification with the body. But of course one has to be careful also to take proper care of the body since that is the basis of a happy and healthy life. Okay, but then some people regard themselves not as the body itself, but then they come to the view that I am in the body. This will be the views of those who adhere to a strong theory or view of the soul or self, sometimes as something which is infused into the body at birth by the Almighty Creator God, or in the Hindu conception, the soul is considered to be an independent, immaterial entity which reincarnates from life to life, always preserving its identity. The Bhagavad Gita uses the simile, just as a man might put on one suit of clothes, then after the next day take them off, put on another suit of clothes, take that off, put on another suit. In the same way the soul goes, the Atman goes from life to life, taking one body, another body. So this is a kind of view of the self as in the earth, in the body. Another view would be conceiving from earth. That is, one considers the self to be something which 
emerges from physical matter. It's not identical with with matter, but the self emerges from it. I think this would correspond to some of the creation views from the Vedas. There is originally, according to the Vedas, at least one version, Prajapati creates the whole universe, then enters into it and dwells within it, while at the same time standing apart from it and controlling it from without. In fact, even the view of of conceiving from earth can also be interpreted to mean conceiving apart from or separate from earth. This can be the view that one has a true self or an I which is something apart from its physical embodiment. So that the real self is not something within the body but beyond the body, outside the body. And the true self was, I think, the view of a kind of transcendental self. One can work out many different interpretations of these phrases. And in the translation, my translation of the Sutta with the commentary, the commentary gives many applications, but I won't try to cover all of them in this class. Okay, then there comes in the fourth place, conceiving earth to be mine. This is where one doesn't identify with the object, but one appropriates it, grasps it, takes it to be something that belongs to oneself. So we have these four types of conceiving, and we might reduce these four to two basic activities. I would call them big words, but the meaning should be obvious. One is identification. That is where you identify with this particular object. You take, this is the I, this is myself. The other is appropriation, which means one takes possession. So the first three are types of identification. The fourth, appropriation, possession. And then following this pattern of conceiving, the Buddha adds another phrase, he delights in earth. That is, he takes pleasure in it, takes pleasure through what's implied here, through craving, through tanha. He delights in it, seeks pleasure in it, and clings to it in order to obtain more pleasure from it. Okay, so those are the five types of thinking or manyana of the uninstructed world. Then the Buddha raises the question, why this is so? Why does the worldly person think and conceive his experience in these ways? 
and the answer the Buddha gives is because he has not fully understood it he has not understood its real nature in accordance with the principles of the Dhamma and has not understood it completely in accordance with the principles of the Dhamma as we go along when we come to the section on the trainee, the learner, then I'll deal in greater length, deal at great length with what is implied by the word full understanding. For now, maybe it's just sufficient to say that lack of full understanding is equivalent to what? What is the key term in Buddhist? What is it? Avijja or ignorance. All of these modes of distorted perception and deluded thinking come from ignorance. Okay, maybe this would be enough. Okay, if there's any questions, anything needs clarification. Where the perception is quite an accurate reflection of I would <coughs> I would say that that does take place. I mean that is part of the natural process of cognition that the initial moment of cognition is just an active an accurate replication or reproduction of the datum. He doesn't understand that. And it happens so quickly that it's the perception that's immediately sort of followed by this distortion. And so what appears within the whirling's consciousness, what comes to him clearly one is able to stop the cognitive process at an early stage before the distortions and deluded conceptions are superimposed. So the work of sati, of mindfulness, is really a way of getting back to the immediate perception. Clearly called the clear light of the void. Yeah. I say there's a certain definite parallel parallelism between so what takes place in that Tibetan first bardo. It's not like a perception of an immediately given object, but it's supposed to be the true, the luminous nature of the mind. But the way the process of cognition is construed here, understood here, it's a direct perception of an object. There's still this functioning of mind and object, but it's just that the object gets almost immediately after it's directly perceived, then the distortions and deluded thoughts intrude and distort the appearance of the object. But I think this is treated the way the difference 
occasion, the different stages of cognition take place, is treated very well from one angle in the Abhidhamma and also in another angle from the later Buddhist logicians like Dignaga and Dhammakirti, the original Dhammakirti, <laughs> their treatment of the stages of cognition. It's very complex, very difficult, but... Well, Sanya is always present yeah. at every moment of cognition. But the first moment of cognition, say, in the Abhidhamma scheme, is what they call a bare sense consciousness. So there's just, at that moment, just a direct bare cognition of, a, say, a sense object. There's no, not yet the work of, of craving, conceit, wrong views have not yet entered into consciousness. But it's just, say, a visible form appears, it's just the form appearing to eye consciousness. There is always a difficulty. Excuse me? Patavi. Patavi? I don't think Patavi gives such a <laughs> so much difficulty. Yeah, yeah. Next is more complex. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, that is true. That is so. Yeah. Anyway, next week I will deal with. The, I'm going to explain the actual 24 bases of conceiving. Now I didn't want to get into a anal detailed analysis of Earth, but I just took it as a simple example of any object. But next week I will deal with the 24 bases of, of cognition that are described in the sutta. Any further questions? Okay, then we will stop for now and then we'll have we'll continue with the Mula Pariyaya Sutta next Thursday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.